The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, the one and only AOC. That's right, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She joins us uh, in the lead up to this interview. We asked Lever readers to send in their questions for AOC, and we asked as many of them as we could. We discussed everything from her push to impeach Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to what she's planning to do to try to stop the Biden administration's ongoing lurch to the right. We also talked about whether or not she believes her House Democratic colleagues need to face primary challenges. And also, AOC responds to those who have criticized her for voting to break rail workers' strike and those who have criticized her for not withholding her House votes more often to try to get Democratic leaders to stick to their progressive campaign promises. This week, in our premium podcast feed, just for our paid subscribers, we also have two things for you. The first, an extended portion of our interview with AOC, where I ask her to describe in detail the influence of money in Congress and how it works on a day-to-day level. It was a fascinating first-person look at the corruption of the halls of power. Also on the premium feed for our paid subscribers, a special bonus episode exploring the surprise and huge win of progressive Brandon Johnson over corporate-backed candidate Paul Vallis in Chicago's big mayoral election this week. Just a heads up, we're going to be posting a lot more bonus content in our Lever Premium podcast feed. If you're not already a paying subscriber and you want access to our premium content, head on over to levernews.com and become a supporting subscriber right now. This gives you access to the Lever Time Premium podcast feed with all the extended interviews and bonus content. Plus, as a paid subscriber, you'll have access to all of the in-depth reporting and investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever, and you're helping fund that journalism. Just hit the subscribe button at levernews.com to support the work we do. Also, if you like this podcast, we'd really appreciate your help. Tell your friends, tell your family about Lever Time. Leave a rating and review on your podcast player. Independent media will only grow and thrive because of passionate people and word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm here today with Lever Times producer, Jared. What's up, producer Jared? Hey, David. Uh, Exciting week with Trump's indictment and charging. The media fervor almost made me feel like we were back in 2018. (laughs) There's no one's wearing masks. We're we're solely focused on Trump and his outrageous crimes 24-7 on every single channel. I was like, hey, this is almost kind of like retro. It was kind of retro. And and as a preview, we talked to AOC about Trump's indictment. A lot of back and forth in in kind of the media space. Is it good? Is it bad uh, that Trump is being indicted? I mean, I have no – there's no love lost here for for Donald Trump. And I think if he committed crimes, uh, he needs to – he needs to answer for them. Uh, I, I think it's kind of a sad commentary on 
uh, our system that Donald Trump can kind of break all sorts of laws, do all sorts of lawless things, uh, and they're only now indicting him on, uh, you know, it's not a technical issue. I mean, if these are crimes, and we should say, you know, but hush it's just money cr- payments right. to a uh, porn star and all the, right, uh- and, and and I, I so. I don't think two wrongs make a right. So if he's wrong here, if he's committed crimes, he deserves to 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 be held accountable for that. But it's just kind of like that's what we're get what he's being nailed on, like that. Like I'm not saying yeah. that's if he committed those crimes that the, the, that those aren't kind of a big deal. But it's just kind of amazing. Now, I, now listen, I know the argument is that hey, they got Al Capone on tax evasion, right? Point being, that's the idea that Al Capone was doing all sorts of horrible things and they only ultimately got him on kind of paperwork, right? And so the the argument is, is that whatever you can get a quote unquote bad guy on is fine. Throw the book a, a, at the villain, throw the book at the bad guy. I just think, I do think it is kind of an indictment on our, on our system that Donald Trump could behave so lawlessly for so long and only, he only gets nailed on this. Now, I will say, I, I, the the part of the discourse that I don't think is all that valid is this idea that by uh, indicting Donald Trump, it creates a, a so-called dangerous precedent. Uh, this idea that, well, you know, I- indicting a former president, this is the first former president uh, ever indicted, creates a precedent where uh, the people in government will use the criminal justice apparatus uh, to punish their political enemies. Uh, I don't buy that because while I understand that that has happened in other authoritarian countries, I also think you also don't want to give a get out of jail free card to presidents, right? You don't want to say just because you're president, just because we don't typically prosecute former presidents when you leave office, that you get to do whatever you want. I mean, right? Like the current system before this, before this indictment was sort of saying that a president can do whatever they want. And rest assured, they'll never get prosecuted for it, right? Yeah, and if Trump is able to get away with all of these crimes, right, like a one-man criminal <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> and the buffet of different indictments or different, uh, you know, criminal possible criminal charges that are that are floating around, and if we can't even get him on this, right? Like that's a precedent also on the other end. That, that That's right. That's right. And I and look, I, I, I don't want to give it away, but I ask AOC this question in our upcoming interview. I ask her, you know, would it be so bad if George W. Bush got indicted for war crimes? Would it be bad for Bill Clinton to be investigated over his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein? Would it be so bad for uh, the Obama administration to be investigated for uh, creating a kill list? Right? Like, I, I don't think the current way we have it down where we've been giving out get out of jail free cards to to former presidents uh, and that that's just the norm. I don't think that's a good norm either. So, I you know, but I, I do hear I I mean, I hear the fear that this kind of thing will get out of control. It'll get tit for tat. Uh, but I also think y- you got to have a justice system. You, you have to have some confidence in in due process, right? I mean, I realize due process, a lot of people who get ensnared in the criminal justice system don't get 
adequate due process. I mean, I think Donald Trump is going to get fairly adequate due process. He's got lots of lawyers. I think, you know, this, there's a big spotlight on this, but I don't think the existing norm of every president gets a get out of jail free card uh, because they were president, because we we can't look back. I mean, that was the crazy thing. If you remember that, that was the crazy thing with the Obama administration. I mean, right when Obama got in, uh, he there was that New York Times story where he said he didn't want to look back at the past programs uh, and potential transgressions of the of the Bush administration. This was like after the, the the lawless surveillance. This was after the uh, Iraq war and the lies that got us into that. I don't think that was a good norm either. But as I said, we will get into uh, the Trump indictment in our big interview. That is what is coming up next, our big interview with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But first, let's take a quick break. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, we are joined by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC, the Democratic lawmaker from New York. Back in 2018, AOC pulled off what I have long said is the most difficult thing to do in all of American politics, defeating an incumbent in a party primary. That kind of thing almost never, ever, ever, ever happens. But it happened in 2018 when Ocasio-Cortez won her U.S. House seat, having never before run for office. She's since become one of the most famous and one of the most controversial members of Congress. Before this interview, we asked Lever readers to send in their questions. So a big thank you to everyone who did. We tried to get to as many of your questions as we could. In fact, most of the questions I asked were amalgams of the questions everyone emailed us. So thanks again for that. With the 2024 election cycle coming up, we asked AOC about what progressive lawmakers and candidates can do to overcome huge outside spending uh, that has overwhelmed these party primaries, uh, often, most often on behalf of corporate candidates. I also asked AOC to share her thoughts on how the Medicare for All movement seems, at least for now, to have stalled and why healthcare is no longer an issue for Democrats. Why, where did the healthcare issue go? Additionally, AOC talked about the climate crisis and also how pervasive and powerful the money is in Congress. There was a lot of talk about money. And she addressed the disillusionment felt by many people who think neither of the major parties cares about them. Congresswoman, thanks so much for being with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with some breaking news. Just before we're talking today, ProPublica breaks open the story of Clarence Thomas accepting luxury private jet and yacht trips from a billionaire Republican donor. It sounds like something uh, out of a cartoon, a caricature of corruption. It's a story that seems to encapsulate all of the Supreme Court corruption that everyone kind of senses, but now it's like right out in the open. And And you're calling for Clarence Thomas's impeachment. So the first question I have is, are you going to draft those articles of impeachment? And do you expect to have the support of many, if not most of the House Democratic Caucus? I mean, listen, I think this is an emergency. Um, I think that this is a crisis. I think we've had a crisis for some time uh, on the Supreme Court. And you know, so in, in to, to get to the heart of your question, uh, we Congress is out of session for the next week. Um, so, and so that does give Democrats 
um, sometimes some time to strategize. And the way I feel about it is that the I do think articles need to be introduced. If we decide strategically that the actual author of those articles and, and who introduces them may not be me, that's fine. I will support impeachment. But I just think that if no one's going to introduce it, I, I would certainly be open to doing so and drafting them myself. I think this is uh, gone far, far beyond any sort of acceptable standard in in any democracy, let alone an American democracy. So let's turn to the 2024 election. We're going to talk about politics, then we'll talk about Congress. Uh, start. Let's start with the 2024 election, even though we just got done the 2022 election. Yeah. <laughs> you won office through a contested Democratic primary. Uh, one in which very few pundits and party operatives said you even had a chance to win. With that history in mind, do you believe uh, more House Democratic incumbents should face primaries? Do you believe that the primary process is healthy for the Democratic Party? Or there's another school of thought that says it weakens uh, Democratic candidates and the party should work to try to stop those primaries? Mm -hmm. No, I am... I do believe that uh, primaries are healthy. I, you know, when I first got to the House, um, not, you know, not just through winning a primary, but when I was sworn in afterwards, the even, even just a public acknowledgement that a primary process involving incumbents is legitimate and healthy for the party uh, was just completely taboo. And uh, me supporting that and including supporting primary challenges um, afterwards, it really kind of, <laughs> the party declared war right back. And they declared war uh, not just on my candidacy, but also on progressives writ large. And we really saw uh, that, I think, last cycle with particularly the overwhelming amount of, um, of APAC funds that uh, really targeted progressives, including incumbents, uh, that had, um, you know, that had stances that were in alignment with respect for Palestinian human rights. And so, you know, not just there, but from other parts of it. And I understand that it also goes both ways. At my first re-election, the party you know, the party establishment mounted a $5 million primary challenge against me. So I'm aware that saying that primaries are a good thing and healthy for the party um, also means that I may be on the receiving end of those things, but I, I, I still maintain that position. So uh, you mentioned APAC. I mean, they coordinated millions of dollars in super PAC spending against progressives, as you allude to. Last election cycle, Summerlee won in Pennsylvania, but their spending helped defeat folks like Jessica Cisneros, Donna Edwards, Andy Levin, Nina Turner. What can progressive candidates and incumbents do to overcome that kind of spending this cycle? And I want to be precise about this, which is to say that not everyone can be uh, as well known uh, as, for instance, you are. So I think about mm -hmm. this, I, you know, my wife is in a legislature, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, there's this idea of, you, you know, you just go out and you, you do the best you can, but it's, you've got to raise your profile to raise the money in order to be competitive. So how do progressive candidates, let's say for, for the House in this election cycle, how, do, how would you advise them to deal with the possibility of huge money coming in into a primary to spend against them? Yeah, well, you know, I think first and foremost, 
money does not ultimately, it's not ultimately the end all be all of how a person can win an election. Um, for a very long time, you know, it, it has been the case that the person who raises the most money wins. However, I do believe that in the technological and tactical evolution of campaigning, particularly in the progressive movement, we are starting to see more people win while being outspent. I mean, we just had Brandon Johnson uh, win the mayoral candidacy in Chicago, and he was outspent two to one on television, um, and, and yet he won. We saw Karen Bass running for the mayoral seat in Los Angeles, and she was running against a billionaire, very well-funded, and she was still able to win it across, uh, you know, get things across the line. I think that really what this is about is building a very sophisticated infrastructure in the progressive movement that focuses on field operations um, and really professionalizing how we are able to, to share that across the movement because far too many campaigns start from scratch. And, um, and that's something that, you know, I've been thinking about a lot and been working on about, um, I, have a, I have a PAC, a Courage to Change, that focuses on down ballot elections and supporting progressives that are exactly in that similar boat where they, they aren't able to tap into these high net worth fundraising circles in order to, to build a super well-funded campaign. And so when you do that, and having been there, when I ran the first time, it was the same thing. Um, you got to know how to run a street fight in a really professional way. And it needs to be down to precincts. It needs to be down to blocks. You need to know your path to victory. And this can't just be about like a post and pray <laughs> approach. Um, we need to know what we are doing. And, um, and thankfully, I think that there's been a lot of progress uh, in that in that respect, but it is something that must be an ongoing commitment and project. So let's turn to uh, let's turn to Congress, the White House, and the like. Uh, in the last few months, President Biden and his administration have broken rail workers' strike. They repealed Washington D.C.'s criminal justice reforms. They rejected a petition to lower the price of a major cancer drug and authorized a huge fossil fuel drilling project in Alaska. What are you? and other progressives in the House planning to do about this move to the right? And speaking of primaries, do you believe it would be healthy for him in his reelection bid to face a primary? Well, you know, when with respect to primaries, like as you um, as you mentioned earlier, and I, I have always stated that I will never be a, a person that says there should not be a primary. I just feel like because of the way that I got to Congress, it would be hip deeply hypocritical for me to to ever be against the existence of a primary process for a candidacy. I mean, it, it just on principle that that is where I stand. Um, I do believe that what ha some of the latest developments coming from the Biden administration are highly concerning, increasingly concerning. And this is also not just from an ideological perspective, not just from a substance perspective, uh, which is the most important, but also from a political perspective. I think it is extremely risky and very perilous uh, should the Biden administration forget 
who it was that actually put him over the top. And when you look at, at, the, at the places, not just abstract levels of turnout, not just where numbers came from, but the places, these swing places that gave Joe Biden the edge on an electoral count victory, it was young people that, that won him this election, communities of color, high turnout areas, and this lurch to the right um, in a time, mind you, when the right is scrambling and kind of lost in the desert on how to even win an election uh, at this point after these stunning losses, I think is, is a profound miscalculation. And it is one that actually, you know, it is quite dangerous. Uh, and so as far as pushing back, I think that uh, the the pushback on on the Biden administration's authorization of the Willow Project has been very encouraging. Um, I think it has it, it is important. We saw Biden's uh, approval ratings dip for the first time in in a significant way, and uh, recently. And I believe it was after the approval of the Willow Project and some of these decisions to lurch to the right that are. Um, that have contributed to that. And so I think what we really need right now uh, is, is having that continued outside vocal organizing um, that allows us when we are approaching the administration to say, this is why this is happening, that we can pull and point to grassroots movements that are telling that story as our evidence, right? Because if we just kind of come up with that abstract claim, um, they're just going to think that it's conjecture, that, it, that this is just our subject. Of course, you're going to say that this is what you already believe. But so, you know, I think it just emphasizes the importance of, of that grassroots organizing because it gives us really the ammunition and the evidence to, to really tell the story about why this is important. And I do believe that the Biden administration historically, um, particularly under Chief of Staff uh, Ron Klain, understood that. I do believe that they that they do not take for granted the role of young people and the role of progressive turnout in their in their 2020 victory. Um, the key is maintaining the boundary and letting them know that this is not something to be taken for granted. So speaking of that, and and I should mention, you know, our readers send in questions. A lot of these questions are an amalgam of, of their questions. The squad has been billed as a block of votes that hold the Democratic caucus and the Biden administration accountable and to create that boundary. At one point you had said, uh, and this I think is a quote, uh, in, in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, which I think is a commentary on a, the way our country's politics are set up. However, you, for instance, have voted 91% of the time with the Biden administration. That includes votes on the rail workers strike, uh, the spending, I think it was $40 billion on the Ukraine war, uh, billions of dollars to microchip companies that have been criticized for using the cash to do buybacks. Uh, you and, and a group of progressives also didn't withhold your vote on the American rescue plan when the Biden administration kind of abandoned the minimum wage. So the question is, how can you hold your party accountable or create that boundary with the Biden administration when you and progressives in the Congress are oftentimes voting for what the party leadership wants and not 
or very rarely, sometimes, but rarely holding out your vote when the party really, really needs it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to address kind of two parts of that question. I'll, I'll get to some of those specific votes, uh, but I do want to emphasize that, you know, as, as you mentioned, there are times where we do break with the party. For example, on Build Back Better, that was a sure. year-long war <laughs> For sure. that we had inside our party. And listen, there were moments where uh, in the lead up to that Build Back Better and bipartisan infrastructure vote, where the president of the United States was on the speakerphone with us saying, you need to do this. And we said, how are you going to pat what, you know, the, the, the pretense that the president had on this is vote for Biff and trust me, I will get Build Back Better across the line. And right there with us facing the president, we're saying respectfully, um, it's this is not about a, and, and the, the framing here to give a window into how internal politics the internal politics of the party works is, do you trust us or not? Do you trust this leadership? And you have to tell this person, right? This is like, this is the, you know, Speaker Pelosi, President of the United States, the Vice President, you have members of the cabinet and, um, and they use kind of like a collective environment. This is not a private conversation. They, it's almost like an invitation to try to say in front of everybody um, and, and that challenge and, to stand up to the speaker and to the president and say, this is not a matter of trust at all. This is a matter of votes. And it's not that I don't trust you. It's that I don't trust Joe Manchin. And I don't know if I trust anybody to be able to bring consistency out of a person who does not have any. Um, but all of that is to say is that I think that that some of these votes also speak to that progressive infrastructure that we're talking about. Um, when it comes to the rail vote, for example, we worked very closely with all elements of the of um, of the rail workers of, of rail workers, both not just uh, not just the Teamsters, not just uh, some of some of the other formal unions, but also those members of the unions that were rebelling against the initial round of these agreements, um, and it was in tandem with these organizations like when you look at for example rwu um, and some of those folks that were leading the fight on opposing um, that initial agreement to to a terrible contract those were the folks that we were working with in developing our organizing strategy around this and it was in following you know the the actual rail workers lead both um, on both camps this was not just about choosing um, traditional union leadership, but also that rank and file grassroots leadership that we tried to determine our strategy, that we worked with Senator Sanders and we worked with uh, many others saying, how do you all want us to proceed? And that initial, the initial push was to rubber stamp this agreement with no attempt at, at, at getting paid leave. And procedurally, um, what we were asked to do by that rank and file is to get us a paid leave vote. That was the determination. That was the organizing leading up to that vote. That was the request that was made of me. And that is what I agreed to deliver on. Now, I think on the other end of that, there is a difference between 
the, this kind of like spontaneous digital response versus the actual organizing rooms and people that are that are directly impacted by this. And when you look after the vote, folks like RWU were saying, this is what we asked them to do. Um, now, granted, I think that got drowned out by the noise of just people kind of operating more on 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 like the theory of the situation. Uh, but, you know, I think ultimately there there are moments where there are going to be internal disagreements about strategy. It is so important, especially among the left, that we develop a discernment between when there are differences in strategy, sometimes they are intense and sometimes they are rigorous and vigorous disagreements versus um, equating that that difference in strategy with somehow a, a 180 change in commitment to our vision and our principles. And trust me, there is so much money and so much interest uh, invested in sowing chaos on the left. Um, and I think there is a moment where we have to realize that the same tools that we, that are good for us, you know, the, the, the development of, and, and the way that we can use the internet to bypass some of the traditional structures that have gatekept our media, gatekept our political organizing, et cetera, these are still algorithms owned by billionaires that want to incentivize internal conflict. And they do. And I do believe that there are times where we have fallen for it. Um, that being said, that criticism, like criticism is fair and that's okay. But many of these votes, what I think like if, if I were to, to ask for something, what we need is that a lot of times this organizing and reaction happens after a vote. And before and in the lead up to a vote, we are often asking, begging <laughs> some of our grassroots partners for a position. And, um, and a lot of times, and I think that this is also often for resource reasons, that organizing doesn't often happen until after the flashpoint has already occurred. And what is most useful, most beneficial is for that engagement to happen prior to a vote, prior to that development, because you know, what we're able to do, it, it, for example, with the rail vote is to like all like all the only partners that I had leading up to that were our rail workers. Um, and if that's what they asked us to do, you know, then then that's what we did. I mean, I think your point about there being uh, differences in tactics ending up being uh, uh, interpreted as a difference in values is a is a huge thing. I mean, it's just a huge issue, I guess. I guess the philosophical question on that is, I think there are a lot of people who look out at politics and see so much money uh, invested in so many different outcomes that aren't good for people. They see, they perceive both parties selling them out in different ways. The Republicans being super extremists, the Democrats maybe saying the right thing, but oftentimes not delivering. I guess as just a follow, when people are, are from your perspective, misinterpreting a difference in tactics and strategy for a difference in values, do you blame them? And, and, and I guess, how would you, why shouldn't they see it that way if they feel like the political system has been selling them out for 10, 20, 30 years? 
I don't, um, I don't blame a lot of people for that. I do blame some because I do believe that there are folks and leaders in the space that know better and they fan flames that they know are disingenuous uh, for personal gain. And I think that that is, there's, there's a lot of incentive in that uh, in when there is kind of an economy that has developed that is based on clicks, views, and attention. And we know, we know the thing that attracts that more than anything else is conflict. And so there are financial incentives for certain people, I believe, um, whose, whose, whose income, you know, revenue relies on that uh, to stoke conflict. And frankly, it's a recreation of a lot of what we see in mass media, right? Like mass media is so left, right heavy. It's so Republican versus Democrat heavy precisely because it drives, I mean, a large contributor is because it drives viewership. And I believe that, you know, when you get into more niche audiences, it's the same thing that those similar conflicts can be driven by amplifying sometimes those disingenuous uh, takes um, to fan intra-left conflict, which is, I think, and I, I want to also be thoughtful and create space for the fact, because I don't want to equate that with saying, you know, any criticism of our decisions is, you're just playing into the hands of, of someone else. There are, you know, there are just multiple things that can be true at the same time. Um, and, it, you know, it, I think that this is something that we that we need to to really develop and talk out because a lot of these decisions are not last minute. They may happen last minute. But we can often see that they're coming from a mm -hmm. long ways out. We just don't know exactly when, right? But we will, and not just me as a member, but I believe that us as movements, you see certain tensions happening. This scale up to the real vote was, was months in the making. And so we had been in communication with workers for months about what, what how do we want to see this unfold? And the the number one thing that we had that emerged from those conversations is that the thing that was absolutely most important is paid leave, securing that paid leave. And um, and also tactically what we are materially capable of. I understand that theoretically um, in talking about the strike, like I understand why someone would have that position, but we need to be honest about ourselves honest with ourselves about what something like a wildcat strike takes. And is, are we ready for that? Are the seeds sown for that? Sometimes they are. We've seen that with the teachers unions and what happened in West Virginia and what's happened in Los Angeles. But sometimes a workforce may not be prepared for that. And if they, and if a movement isn't, then we have to decide what other tactics we're going to use. I want to turn to uh, just a couple of issues real quick. Um, healthcare. 
it seems to have completely fallen off the Democratic Party's agenda. And this is a our readers are very interested in this. Mm-hmm. As president, Joe Biden literally hasn't even mentioned uh, the public option that he promised during the campaign. Healthcare crisis get, is getting worse. And and it seems like the best that the, the sort of Democratic Party can agree on is to promise to throw more money at health insurance companies through the ACA exchanges. While also the Biden administration is continuing to privatize Medicare through Medicare Advantage. Mm -hmm. All of this is only a few years after Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign seemed to galvanize the real prospect for a Medicare for all push. So the question is, why do you believe the Medicare for all push seems to, at least right now, seems to have stalled? And and why does it feel like health care isn't even really an issue for the Democratic Party right now? Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, I I do think that the power of the insurance lobby is so incredibly powerful. You know, if I had to think about like the top, it would probably be fossil fuels potentially, but pharma and uh, insurance is way up there, and um, and I also believe that. Big Pharma and also the insurance companies have a broader number of members that can be influenced by them. You know, with big oil, it's it's predominantly Republicans and then a chunk of of certain Democrats. But with insurance, it's I think it's much more broad across both parties. And so I think there's a couple of things. I think that um, when Bernie ran on Medicare for all in 2016, it created an enormous amount of electoral fervor that led a lot of members to co-sponsor um, Medicare for all. Uh, but I, th- I do believe that when push comes to shove, um, the number of people that are willing to really fight for Medicare for all uh, is probably less than the number of co-sponsors on that bill. And frankly, even if we had a floor vote on it, um, because of the lack of prospects in the Senate, I also think there would be a lot of disingenuous votes for it when people know that it's going to a graveyard. And so um, I do believe that we are approaching an interesting political window. We just saw an unprecedented and generational shift, once in a generation shift, at least once in the last generation, in uh, leadership of the Democratic Party, um, particularly in the House. And I think it was pretty well known that where Pelosi's position on this was. Um, she, she, I believe, has a very strong record about trying to strengthen the, the ACA, um, but also through expanding those, what ultimately is the subsidies to insurance. And so, um, so the question for us is, I think, going back and, I, and putting that pressure, whether it's through primaries or whether it's um, through putting that pressure on every member of the Democratic caucus to go on record um, on Medicare for all, that I think is where we are at. I, I also agree, I, you know, I, some, I, I think that this is an issue where perhaps in, among, among many elected Democrats, they just think it's too pie in the sky right now. I also think that um, 
that a lot of this has to do with the Senate filibuster. Like there are so many things that people take positions on, but they don't really put energy into because as long as the filibuster exists, um, it, it's this idea of if we can't even get like basic gun safety past a filibuster, what can we even do for universal health care? And so I actually do think that um, providing and mounting a really strong fight to dismantle the filibuster in the Senate is the only it, it has to be a precursor um, to to any fight for universal health care and for guaranteed health care. Now, I don't think that it's this or that. I think we need to be building both of these things at the same time. Um, but we also need to be real about the actual tactical reality of how we make it happen. And we can't make anything happen unless it can either surpass, unless we can elect 10 more Democrats to the Senate or dismantle the filibuster and 10 more Medicare for all and keep the entire caucus. Like that to me seems far less realistic than actually pressuring the party to dismantle the filibuster. Let's let's turn to to climate. I mean, it's it's scientists are warning that climate change poses an existential threat for all life on Earth, telling us we got to halt all new fossil fuel development. And in response, Congress did the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes both lots of subsidies for green energy, but also a big potential to expand fossil fuel development. And as we discussed, the Biden administration just approved this Willow Project in Alaska. Looking back on the last two years on the whole. Has the Democratic Party helped the fight against climate change or has it made the problem worse? And has it taken it the problem ser as seriously enough as it deserves to be taken? So I when it comes to climate, I I want to. I think I, I want to kind of talk about when we with this question about the party overall, I'm not I'm a. I'm a major critic of the party that I am a part of. Um, and uh, and so, like, I I can speak to I think the Biden administration has um, has been very disappointing on climate. Um, we have seen both in the first 25 months of the Trump presidency versus the first 25 months of the Biden presidency. Uh, Biden has authorized um more fossil fuel permits and I believe uh, uh, projects. And so, you know, even just in the in the brass tacks of it, this is this is a serious issue in the Biden that the Biden administration, um, I think, is is failing on also with immigration as well. But that's a separate conversation. However, it's it's this duality of multiple things being true at the same time. Um, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act and the climate provisions in it is it is both the biggest action in American history um, with these substantive, really structural shifts that will, I believe, unlock significant developments um, on climate, clean energy and, and other types of infrastructure. But we are also, you know, compared to um, the science of the situation, it is both the biggest thing we've ever done and also still not enough. Uh, but that being said, I don't think that this fight is going to happen in one fell swoop, in one piece of legislation. And I think it's going to take save several major knockout victories, but we have accomplished one of them. Um, I do think that 
uh, that we're going to see a lot of the benefits of that. Um, but it, it, this is an infrastructure investment, which takes time to build that out and create those jobs. Now, that being said, I think um, the Biden administration deserves uh, very much so criticism on their authorization of fossil fuel projects like the Willow Project. Um, and um, but ultimately, I do think that it, between this and it also very much ties to the geopolitical decisions that we have to make. So much of it revolves around fossil fuels, scarcity and energy, uh, energy policy globally. Uh, I was just in Japan last month and so many of the geopolitical decisions that these countries have to make have to do with their energy supply and have to do with the realities that they need to contend with. And if we do not lead on this, um, on, a, on accelerating a shift to renewables, uh, we're, you know, we're going to be, we are going to contend with, with some major issues domestically and internationally. Okay. I got two more questions for you. The first of the, of the last two questions, I want to briefly go to the Trump impeachment. Democrats seem very excited about the indictment. Uh, I said Trump impeachment. I meant indictment. <laughs> they seem very excited about the indictment of Donald Trump. Um, there's some folks who are concerned that allowing this indictment to go forward uh, kind of uh, creates a situation where uh, we create a precedent where people's uh, political enemies, uh, uh, once they take power, will then indict uh, past presidents. I'm curious where you come down on that. And, and I want to I want to the way I'm kind of trying to think through this, some questions that come to mind, like. Should George W. Bush be indicted for the war crimes in Iraq? Should Barack Obama be indicted for creating an extra legal kill list that targeted and murdered American citizens? Should Bill Clinton be criminally investigated over his dealings with Jeffrey Epstein? Like, where do you come down in thinking about all of that? Well, you know, if the conversation is about precedent, it is important to look at the actual details of the situation. Donald Trump was indicted uh, in New York for a for New York violations of New York law, um, violations of New York business law, uh, and these were crimes that are alleged to have occurred um, in and and around the state of New York. And so, like when we're actually looking at at the details of the situation and the precedent of the situation, and not only that, but there were also many counts of it, right? And so. You know, I just I think that I I believe that a lack of due process when there is just like flagrant evidence that this person did this thing. You know, we are talking about due process. We are talking about prosecutorial standards. We it's not a political debate. Right. This is about gaining evidence if an event occurred or not that that clearly violated statute. Um, and, you know, I think that regardless of party, if someone is covering up hush and we have and we have seen this, we have seen both Democrats and Republicans um, go to jail. You know, we've seen govern we've seen this happen to governors. We have seen this happen uh, in in many instances and cases. And so, you know, when it comes to um, to some of these other allegations, that also becomes a question of jurisdiction. Right. I think there's a reason why the why these charges did not come from the DOJ. Um, and that is because I, I believe that the DOJ, it does have 
and very heavily weigh um, the, those types of considerations and what the implications are, uh, no less because they are part of a, of a federal and executive administration, right? And, um, and as much as we, you know, discuss independence, and I think in an optimal system that independence uh, should exist, at the end of the day, you know, our, there are implications, as you mentioned, to doing that. And so, you know, I, I think we have seen the DOJ never really act on anything um, in that respect because that that bar on federal charges is so high and so precedent setting. But, you know, that is also to say, you know, Trump is also, you know, there are ongoing investigations in the state of Georgia regarding Georgia law um, and and other places. And so I think that I mean, listen, if if there are if there is clear evidence for a crime, there is that there is that precedent there. I, I do believe that the bar should be high. I don't think that we should be, you know, knee jerk pursuing we should not be pursuing political a political agenda on this, but that also doesn't equate to immunity either. And where that line is drawn is a delicate one. But I do think that in the case of of Donald Trump, it was just it. it I mean, we're talking about a guy who incited a terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol and has to date experienced no consequences for it. I think that the bar has been met. <laughs> OK, final question for you. Okay, this is where the free version of our podcast ends. But for our paid subscribers, you also get our bonus segment, which is the rest of this interview with AOC, specifically the part of the interview where she gives us an inside look at exactly how powerful money is in Congress. She takes us inside the halls of power to explain how big money operates on a granular day-to-day -day level in Washington and how it affects lawmakers on a deep psychological level. If you're a paying subscriber, you have that bonus segment in your premium feed right now. If you are not yet a paying subscriber and you wanna hear that bonus segment and all of our bonus segments, go become a subscriber at levernews.com. That gives you access to our premium podcast feed. So that's it for today's show. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the terrific reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our lead producer is Jared Jacang Mayer, and our editor is Dennis Golan. You can find all of our past episodes at levertimepod.com or on all of the major podcast players. 